Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Spirit Rock. Um, I hope you enjoy your day here with us. What a full house we have. It's wonderful. Um, Just a couple of announcements that I have for Spirit Rock and then for David also. One is that if you need anything, if you're... um, If you need anything, please come and see me. My name is Mary Ellen, and I'm the event coordinator for the day. Or anybody who has a badge on. They're all of our volunteers. We have nine volunteers today. So please make yourself comfortable. Um, Just come see us if you need anything. You're welcome to eat or drink in here, as long as you have a cover on the top of your tea or water or anything. That's fine. Um, There is a retreat going on up top, and if you want to take a walk, you're welcome to walk on the land. We have gates. There's wooden gates that that um, kind of separate the the two, the upper hall, upper upper hall, and down here. Um, let's see. David has books for sale. He has CDs in the back of the room. We have a volunteer back there to help you with that. He also is going to be. We're going to take lunch from twelve thirty to two, and at a quarter to two, he'll be back here to sign books and CDs and anything that you need. I'm sorry, I don't think I can do anything about the sun that's coming in your eyes. Uh, let's see. And um, David is ready to start, I believe. Okay. Thank you, Mary Ellen. So we'll begin with a 10-minute sitting in silence. If you can just put your books and papers aside. This uh, brings us into the presence of one another.
Welcome, everyone. We don't have time to go around and have everybody introduce himself or herself individually. So if you maybe introduce yourselves to the people on your left and right, we'll start that way. Okay, Um, I'll just start with some quick announcements. One is we'll take a break in the middle of the morning and middle of the afternoon for about 10 minutes. And the lunch, as you know, is at 1230. Um, On the back table, I have, uh, they aren't really CDs. They are, I I took the uh, classes and put them on thumb drives. So if you're, and there, so then there are MP3s on thumb drives, and you can put them into your computer or listen in the car or on the phone. And basically, I gave a series of classes, one of which is called Love and Trust, another one's on how relationships work, another one. The the most popular one is called Growing Pains and Growing Up, How Our Childhood Affects Our Adult Relationships. And they're all uh, 12 talks, and it's a live class. So if you're interested in having any of those um, as a follow-up to what we're doing today, they are in the back. Uh, 
as far as our program today, the book that we're using is called Daring to Trust, which is um, in the bookstore. Uh, and I thought I would begin with um, just reading a short section of the from the introduction in which I use a particular uh, metaphor. We now embark on a voyage into waters more often troubled than tranquil. Only we brave hearts will want to board the ship called trust. Can we trust the ship not to sink? Can we trust our shipmates? Those are the questions we keep pondering with respect to our families and relationships, not to mention our world. Only those of us willing to be vulnerable can sail this sea of risk. If we fall overboard, headlong into the billows, we may fear they're engulfing us. Can we trust our fragile bodies to stay afloat in such a rowdy sea? We tread water with no guarantee that the promised or hoped-for hand will be there for us in the chill and buffeting waves. And will the intrepid mate who dares to swim in our direction get us back on board and stay with us from ship to shore? There are fearsome hazards in the tides of human trust, but these are risks that most of us have been willing to take again and again, greatly to our credit. Sometimes our cruises pulled into ports where great loyalty awaited us. For that, we were appreciative. Sometimes we have been severely betrayed by the one who seemed to be there for us, but was not. For that, we grieved. Our history of trust is the ship's log of our life. And what follows in our workshop is hopefully provides a life jacket, sometimes an anchor, sometimes little more than a plank, stretching precariously over the lonesome blue, uncharted deep. But we will find a way to surf these waves, not drown in them. So that's a very poetic way of starting. And uh, obviously, trust is the basis of all relationships. And sometimes we think of trust, which the dictionary defines as a reliance on an agreement that's made to you or a reliance on the ability that someone has promised to have. For instance, the ability to make a commitment. Trust being the foundation of a relationship is usually understood as 
somehow having to do with I have to be able to trust you. So we're moving from subject to object. Perfectly understandable that we would see it this way. The only problem with this is that it doesn't take into account one of the givens of human life, which is that people are not always trustworthy. They are sometimes, but they're not always trustworthy. And if trust has something to do with consistency, then this way of looking at it is not only limited, but uh, erroneous. So we're going to have to, we're going to keep our belief that trust is the foundation of relationships. But we're going to have to find a way of expressing it that accommodates the given that if your trust is in someone else's hands, you could at times be in trouble. So let me restate it. Trust is the basis of relationship. Instead of saying it's about how I need to trust you, we would say, I trust myself in two ways. When you are trustworthy toward me, I have it in me to receive this beautiful gift and appreciate it. So I trust myself when you are trustworthy. I'll be able to take hold of it and I'll feel appreciative that you're offering it to me. And at the same time, if it occurs in some instance that you are not trustworthy, if you show yourself not to keep agreements, not to keep a commitment, not to follow the ground rules of the relationship. I have it in me to handle the wallop of the betrayal. I have built inner resources before I came into the relationship so that when something like this happens, I have something inside I can call upon. I'll say more about what we call upon. But for now, I can handle the breakdown of trust. And I do so without retaliating. Instead, 
I open up a dialogue. I say, ouch, that hurt. Let's talk about this. Let's see what we can rebuild or how we can handle this. That's the topic of our day. Trust gained, lost, regained. But for now, we have to begin in an entirely adult style. Child version of trust. I trust mommy to fulfill my infant needs. In fact, this is where we learned how to trust. Remember I said you'd have to be able to receive the trust? Well, you receive the trust because there were consistent instances in early life in which your needs were responded to, were held to be appropriate, and were taken care of over and over again, even though you couldn't quite put them into words. So when you first realized you wanted food, you simply cried, and you had to trust that the caregiver would read the cry correctly and put you on the breast as opposed to misreading it and thinking you needed to be changed or misreading it thinking you needed to be held. Sometimes you wanted any of those three and you, ha- you learned to use different cries and gradually mother could read the cries and knew what you needed. And when she or whoever the caregiver was responded appropriately to the best of his or her ability, you started to trust that you had been born into a world which has the resources that can fulfill your needs. I came in with needs. There are resources here. And the people in the setting in which I find myself, that is the house, they know how to hear my needs and respond to them. And I also noticed that when they respond, they do it in an affectionate, loving way. So now the sense of trusting others has yet another element. Trust has something to do with love. You're lovingly responded to. So the trust happens in the context of a holding environment. Holding environment is a phrase from the famous British uh, child psychiatrist, Donald Winnicott. He says, a holding environment is one in which 
the needs are consistently fulfilled. People are able to attune to your needs and they love to respond to them. So love and trust came together and that made it possible for you later in life to receive trustworthiness whenever it comes your way. Rather than to suspect it or fear it or run away from it. No, you'd be welcoming the trust because it all happened originally in safety and security. I feel safe here. They're going to maintain me in existence, not kill me. I feel secure here. They're going to stay here in this house with me. If they go to a new house, they'll take me with them. So safety and security in early life carries over into adult life as those exact same two needs. I want to be in a relationship in which I feel safe to be myself and I feel like the relationship itself is secure. It's not going to end in a minute and it's going to be able to withstand various moments of untrustworthiness. It's going to be able to withstand various conflicts, misunderstandings. Somehow it's big enough to hold, holding environment, big enough to hold all my mistakes. And I am big enough to hold all your mistakes as long as we're continually in dialogue about them. So, summary. In early life, Trust means subject trusts object. I trust mother to fulfill my needs. The reason I trust mother to fulfill my needs is because of a continual series of fulfillments. Or another way of saying it is, I based my trust on evidence. She showed me that she could be trusted. She gave me evidence. So I trust based on evidence. And I notice that the trust happens in the context of love. So that will make me carry it over into adult relationships of love. But then I see that as an adult, it isn't I trust you. Now that I know that one of the givens is not everybody's trustworthy all the time, not even mother. Instead, now I trust myself. In every instance in which you show yourself to be trustworthy, 
I will lovingly receive it and appreciate it and tell you so. In every instance in which you fail me, disappoint me, hurt or betray me, I have it in me first to handle it as an issue that I need to take care of internally. I'll say more about this. And the one thing I won't do is retaliate because that is not in keeping with my spiritual practice. But the one thing I will do with regard to you is to say, ouch, that hurt, and to open up some kind of a dialogue. What that dialogue will look like, that will also be part of our topic. So this is the overall intro to our topic. Questions about this part? And we have somebody with uh, uh, somebody right back there. Do we have two microphones? Yes. Okay, because there's uh, one person right behind you. Yeah. Uh, should we set it up so that we have the microphone on the stand and the person can just come up to the microphone instead of you bringing it to them? Might be easier. Okay. You want to just place that microphone like in the center of the aisle? And then just come on up if you're on this side there and this one here. That way you don't have to run around as much. Good morning. Um, I would like to know yeah. uh, when the trust between the and the early childhood when that doesn't happen between the parent and child, how does that play a bigger effect? Okay. Good. She's bringing up a, an important point. So let me go to that. Um, and some of you have already heard this part, so I'll, I'll kind of go through it uh, fairly quickly. So we come into the world. With, can everybody see it this way? Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Okay. Um, uh, can you figure out how to... Oh. See if you can tighten that. So we come into the world with many needs, but I've, um, if we could keep it this way, is, would it work? Oh, okay. All right. We certainly need attention. Twenty-four hours a day at first, less and less as we get older. Now I hardly need any attention at all. (laughs) Once we start showing what we're like, we certainly would want to be accepted as we are rather than as they expected us to be, they parents. So that's a big one. 
did they cherish us, appreciate us? That would be a need. That's the Latin word for price. For price? Price. Value. Did they show all of this in an affectionate way? Were they showing affection physically, but not sexually? And then finally, when the time came for us to move away, not depend on them so much, first time was when you crawled across the floor instead of having to be carried across. Happened again when you went to school, left home altogether, and kept happening. When the goings began, did they fully allow them? Or did they try to guilt trip you for them? Or did they try to hold you back? Did they try to keep you there to fulfill their needs? Opposite of attention is to be with parents who are so caught up in their own narcissistic desires that they couldn't really focus on you. Opposite of acceptance is they reject anything about you that is not in keeping with their moral or familial or social beliefs. Opposite of appreciation is taking you for granted, not thinking of you as having special value, especially if there were many other children. Opposite of affection is non-touching. Opposite of allowing is controlling. So I call these the five A's. And they become a working definition when you add them all up. They become a working definition of love. How do I know someone loves me? Pays attention, accepts me as I am, appreciates, shows affection appropriately. Now it could include sex in adult life, if that's appropriate to the relationship, and allows me to make the decisions that reflect my own deepest needs and wishes rather than his or hers. These same five needs, which were the ones we had in childhood and for which we needed mirroring, attuning responses from our parents over and over again, that built the trust. These are the same five needs that we bring into adult relationships. I'm still needing the same thing I needed in the beginning. So that's a wonderful quality of nature that you don't have to start with a whole new set of needs. You just have the same ones all your life. And uh, you'll know right away if somebody... uh, is fulfilling them. How do you know you love someone? You give these to them. Now, if these needs were fulfilled, and my new way of putting it is this, 
they were fulfilled in a good enough way most of the time. Good enough most of the time. Not perfect all the time. Not never, not at all. It's they were fulfilled in a good enough how were they fulfilled? Good enough. They gave me some attention, not total, but enough to live on. Uh, and they did it most of the time. You'll know deep down within whether this happened to you. When the needs were fulfilled in the way I just described, so let's say needs fulfilled, this leads to a sense of completion regarding the childhood program. Just as you have a sense of completion about math in grammar school, you notice you can add, multiply, subtract, and divide pretty well. So you feel like well, whatever they did there, it worked. I've got the whole four skills pretty much uh, in me now for good. Well, that's the same type of thing that's supposed to happen in childhood, except it's not about the four. <coughs> it's not about those four. It's about these five. So sense of completion <coughs> and a capacity, and this is the important part, to be satisfied ever after with less than 100%, because that's all that other humans can give. They can only give less than 100%. Nobody wants to spend 24 hours a day looking at you with those five A's. And you wouldn't want that kind of person in. So I have the capacity for fulfillment in moderate ways. That's good enough most of the time. Good enough most of the time. That's when the needs were fulfilled. Needs not fulfilled, something different happens. Feel incomplete. This is where you hold resentments against your parents because they didn't come through as you wanted them to. We'll see that those resentments don't really help us. So incomplete and the truly difficult results. You don't have the capacity to be fulfilled moderately 
Instead, you become a bottomless pit. And you're seeking more and more and more from other inadequate humans, that is, all humans. And uh, everybody can tell that you're coming from a needy place that goes all the way back to the beginning of life. And when someone sees you looking like that, if he or she is healthy, they won't want to be with you. But you will be attractive to other people who are in the same boat. So it's messed up all the way. (laughs) However, we're not going to lose hope because this The needs fulfilled, this leads us to ongoing appreciation of our childhood, no problem. This doesn't have to just stay this way. We don't have to remain bottomless pits. We don't have to feel incomplete all the time, have no capacity for normal fulfillment because we want, because we're trying to do two things. We're trying to make up for all that was missing in childhood, plus gain all that's supposed to come from adult relationships. We're not trying to do that if we do a certain kind of work. This is the work I describe in my other class, The Growing Pains of Growing Up. We grieve what we lost or missed And through this grieving process, we self-parent and we start to give ourselves the missing five A's rather than trying to get them from others. Only then, after giving them to ourselves, can we be able to receive them from others in a healthy way. Well, what do I mean by grieve? Well, first of all, grief is a built-in human characteristic. It's actually um, in all the mammals, not just humans. It's a technology inside the organism that handles losses, betrayals, disappointments, hurts, missing pieces. How does it do this? Does it in three ways. First, instead of saying, I resent and strongly dislike the people who disappointed me. Instead of saying that, we say, I'm sad that this happened. And we let ourselves feel the feeling. We admit that we are angry at those who hurt us in some way or disappointed us or 
created this loss. Anger is the normal response to injustice. It was unfair of my parents to bring me into the world if they weren't equipped to fulfill my needs. I'm angry that that happened. I'm angry that they did that. That was unfair to me and to them. We don't take the anger out on our parents now because... We're holding parental imagos, images of them as they were years ago. So you don't bring this up to your parents in the present. That would be missing the point. This is personal work. So so you let yourself feel the feeling of anger toward them, toward yourself, toward whoever. And you just are able to hold it and experience it without having to push it off onto them. That would be a distraction. And third, you recognize the fear element in the whole thing. Fear is the normal human response to threat or danger. It was dangerous to be in a household in which you never knew if your needs would be met. And I may still be in danger now because I've noticed that people don't really want to be with me when I'm like this. And I fear that I'll never find somebody who will really want me or fulfill my needs. So I'm going to let myself feel that fear rather than run away from it or try to... um, distract myself from it by finding a new relationship or a new addiction. So I let myself go through all these feelings and my present practice, the one I'm using in my own life, is very simple. And I really recommend it because I think it really works. What I do now is whenever I have and all of us have this experience, just suddenly out of nowhere, you have a memory of some little moment in your childhood in which your needs were not met or in which you were hurt in some way by one or both of your parents or brothers and sisters or any family member. Instead of just letting it come through as a memory, I am bringing it to the grief feelings. So I say, ask myself two questions. How was I sad then? How was I angry then? How was I afraid then? How am I sad now? How am I angry now? How am I afraid now? So it's then and now. And then just pause enough to let you see if you can have that feeling come through in a physical way. If you can't, just the words themselves are also sufficient. So what you're doing is you're placing the topic in the context in which it actually belongs. 
It doesn't belong in the context of see how wrong they were, I'm going to blame them. It doesn't belong there. It belongs in how, how do I do something with this so I get a healing from it? How do I work with this so I get healthier? And the way to work with it is to take those memories and bring them to the three features of grief. And whatever way you can feel them, fine. If you can't, just at least say it like in an affirmation style. I was sad when she didn't come through for me in that way. And I couldn't show the sadness then. Now I'm an adult and I can show the sadness. I don't feel it right this minute, but I'm just going to acknowledge that it's in there somewhere. And when it wants to come out, I know it will. That's what you sound like when you do this practice. So you do this over and over again the same number of times as they disappointed you. (laughs) So it may take quite a while. That leads you to part two. So this part you do. Part two you don't do. Part two simply happens. Now we're in the realm of grace. A kind of gift dimension. In the grief, something happens. You start to notice that you were holding on to blame, to resentments, even perhaps to ill will toward anyone who hurt you. Now, this can apply to adults who hurt you in relationships too. It doesn't just apply to parents. So you're holding on to blame, resentment, ill will, and the need to retaliate. But what you notice happening is that these are starting to kind of lighten up you notice that you are beginning, don't force it, just let it happen, to let go of holding on to all that heavy blame, resentment, ill will, and need to retaliate. Just starting to soften up. And you don't feel it quite as strongly. You felt it 100%. Starting to feel it only 70%. 40%, so forth. But there's an English word for letting go of blame, resentment, ill will, and the need to retaliate. It's called forgiveness. Or another way of saying it is, you're beginning to forgive. Forgive doesn't mean excuse. It's personal. It's about your, what you're holding inside and how you're no longer holding it quite so um, strongly. When you let this happen, 
So now we're in part two of the grieving. First the feelings. Now the opening ourselves to the grace of letting go. Can't make myself let go, but notice that it's happening. When I notice that it's happening, that leads me to part three, the final part, which is the one we were avoiding from the beginning. Get on with life. No longer blaming parents for the shape your life is in. And this get on with life is the self-parenting. Because that's what parents do. They help you get on with life. Working in reverse? Oh, I must have been afraid to get on with life. That's why I was holding on to blame, resentment, so forth. That's why I was not grieving the past. And this will be a wonderfully liberating feeling. So this part, this happens, this part we do. So it's do, happen, do. So this is good, I'm glad somebody brought this question up because this is good background to how we're going to be working with the trust issue which, as you will see, also has to do with grief when the trust is broken. Questions about this part? Kind of gives you a summary of the um, childhood perspective on the whole thing. Yes? So maybe I have a part two question for this. Yeah. Yeah. What in your experience is the best way to compassionately identify or compassionately communicate if you think this is going on in a relationship from a then place that's being pushed forward into now and you don't want this person to feel blamed or shamed, but you're trying to establish healthy boundaries? Uh, That will be a big part of what we're going to do as we go on. So can I go to that in in sequence, but do ask again if I don't cover everything. Okay, anybody else have somebody? Yeah, there's a microphone right behind you. You can pull it down to your... I have to. (laughs) Yeah. I want to know how you flip this for people who have internalized this and then become the perpetrator as as adults... And parents. The person who becomes a perpetrator. internalized it and then we do it to our kids. How do we forgive ourselves? Oh, I see. Um, well, that will be something like um, our whole topic of rebuilding the trust. It's basically acknowledging that, uh, you know, I looked over these five A's and I can't give myself a full A on each one when I look back at how I was towards you in your childhood. So let's kind of look at them together and let's discuss where you felt like I wasn't paying attention, where I wasn't accepting you. Maybe I'm still not accepting you now. And uh, I want to, you know, hear your response. And I want to see what I can do to change it for the future. That's what you would sound like. If you have a big ego, you're not going to be able to do this. 
because, of course, I can't look bad. Can't look bad is a terrible disability in a relationship or family because we all look bad from time to time. So you're canceling out one of the givens. And that would always be dangerous. It would be, I I had a kind of an example of this. I was giving a class on this topic at uh, UC Berkeley. And I've always remembered this. Um, At the beginning of the, at the beginning of a class, I would say, does anybody have anything to share that happened during the week? And this young woman raised her hand. And I've always remembered this. I just thought it was wonderful. She said, my mother came to visit and she spent the week with me this past week coming visiting from Midwest. And during her visit, she asked me if I thought she was a good mother. And I didn't have a way of answering, but I remembered your five A's. I sat down with her, and I went through one A after the next. (laughs) And I, you know, I said, okay, let's look at how you paid attention. And uh, she said it was just, it was great. I wasn't blaming her or anything, but we just looked matter-of-factly. And some she was great, others she was not so great, others, you know, middle middle of the road. But uh, it really uh, answered the question. I remember a uh, line from uh, one of the novels of um, J.D. Salinger. I think it's Franny and Zoe. Anyway, the... the the uh, the boy says this. He apparently he asked his father a question, and he says, "My father turned to me as if he had been waiting his whole life to hear my question." I thought. Wow, so that's what it would be like. That never happened to me. But, and then I'm not blaming, but I mean, it's just like. <laughs> One day somebody said to me, well, you know, your parents from the 50s and all that, they didn't really have the, those kind of skills. They didn't really know what, what it was like other than when, you know, they were at their job, they... They didn't really focus that much. I suddenly remembered something. My father and my uncles watching the game on television. And that level of total focus on every move that every player was engaging in and the screams of response, I thought to myself, none of them ever looked at me, even for one minute, with that level of attention. So I know they had it in them. (laughs) 
And, and we should all know that. We shouldn't be fooled. We shouldn't say, oh, our parents, they, they couldn't do that. They weren't really equipped. They were doing it somewhere. Because all humans can do it. Do what? Pay attention. Accept you as you are. Appreciate you. That is, value you. Show affection. And allow you to make your own choices. They were doing that somewhere to somebody. Why not me? And the why not me should not be a sense, give us a sense of shame. Oh, there must have been something wrong with me. It isn't really like that. It's um, trying to establish a loving connection with people who had so many of their own issues, they couldn't fully step up to the plate to do that. When you look at it that way, you can have more compassion. Okay, let's have one last question, and then we'll take our break. Um, So when I've lost trust with certain relationships, I've had a tendency to cut them out of my life after that. Basically, you messed up, so we're done here. And I'm curious how that works with this strategy of grieving and creating forgiveness. If you create closure with that person or you need to invite them back in your life and work through these things or you, I I don't know, something that came to my mind. That's a very good question. The depth of the relationship will dictate the level of energy that you will be putting in to regain the trust. A relationship that never felt so trustworthy to begin with, one that, was, that has always been superficial, <clears throat> that one won't evoke the kind of work that we'll be describing after the break. It will only come through when the relationship has become so valuable that you want to save it. Then you will know how to do the work and you will do the work. So one of the ways to know that it wasn't, didn't really have that much depth anyway is to see that when push came to shove and when you were in a position of possibly losing the relationship, you simply let it go. I remember a song by Phil Oakes, and there has this line in it. Sometimes you see something just slipping through your fingers, and you just let it go. That would be an example of a relationship that hadn't caught you in a deep enough way to want to stop that from happening. So we're going to keep that in mind as we continue our discussions. All right, so let's take a short 10-minute break, and we'll go from there.
Is it on now? Yeah. So uh, I forgot to answer the question that someone asked about the self-forgiveness when you look back as a parent or look back in a relationship and what would lead to your being able to forgive yourself. So it's a fairly straightforward, thank you, uh, style. First, you want to admit... the ways in which you have been um, remiss in your parenting or in the kind of partnering that you were offering in your adult relationship. And then you show that you feel sorrow for being like that. Not enough just to admit it. I was very controlling towards you, Johnny, and now I'm sorry that I was like that. And I want to make amends, make up for I can't change the past, but I can do something that that will make a difference. That we will discuss together what the amends might look like. And then finally, I'm making a commitment not to be like that towards you from now on. So it's one, two, three, four. And these are something like the acts of the penitent in Catholic confession. So you confess your sins, you show contrition, you uh, make up for what you have done, and you firmly resolve to amend, to change your way of living in the future. So you will no longer be doing what you were doing that was so um, unacceptable. And you would have to be coming from a very sincere place. When you do all these four, that's the equivalent of the self-forgiveness. Now, if you still feel guilt or shame then it could be that you're carrying around your own issues having to do with guilt or shame that could even go back to your own childhood. And so there you want to look into what's going on with you. But if you're doing these four sincerely, that is the equivalent of forgiveness. It's not letting yourself off the hook, but it is letting go of having to feel so bad about the way you were. And this includes abuse, of course. So I acknowledge that, I admit that I perpetrated abuses towards you. I'm really sorry about that. I want to make amends, like one of the amends might be uh, go to therapy together. 
and uh, making a commitment not to be that way in the future. Now, if the um, if the uh, abuse was truly severe, then this is um, is um, going to be something you'd have to work with in a therapeutic session with someone who's trained in trauma work. But for ordinary, you know, I was controlling, I was demanding, I didn't let you do what you wanted to do in these particular areas. This can really work. And it all happens in dialogue. And also you see this in the 12-step program where they where the alcoholic or drug addict takes a look at how he may have harmed others and uh, makes amends, inventory amends. Questions about this or any questions left over from before? Okay. So let's take a look at one more quick question. Uh, Yeah. Um, I was wondering about how indifference or maybe perhaps it's like an aversion um, is related to this process of healing. Like something for me, I find a lot that I don't necessarily find like blame or resentment, but more towards like a distancing and a lack of care for the people who have harmed me. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Do you mean you were indifferent, you're indifferent toward them or they were indifferent? I'm indifferent towards them because of the abuse that I received. That like, I feel like I, like I was in, um, I grew up in an abusive home and now I'm going through my own grieving process of like feeling the sadness and the anger and the fear. And, like, there was a time where those things came up about the blame and the ill will, but, like, now they're not really coming up. What's more coming up for me is a strong indifference towards them of, like, just, like, a lack of care um, of, like, being in relationship with them and a strong distancing. Well, it sounds like you're going through one of the normal phases of grief, which is that for a while you don't want much to do with the people who were the perpetrators, but you may notice that you'll come back around mm-hmm. once you're ready to have some kind of a dialogue or even tell them about the process you've just been going through. So I wouldn't try to make myself have to interact with them until you're really ready. And Winnicott says, hurry or delay is an interference. So we can't hurry this, and we also don't want to delay it. So let's take a look uh, at one more feature of the trust topic, which I call the compass of trust. This is from the book, Uh, Daring to Trust, which, by the way, is now out in the corridor if you want a copy. And uh, I also printed out this compass of trust and gave it to you as a handout. So let me just uh, 
show how it works because I think it's very helpful. So we have our compass, north, south, west, east. Trust in the center. Our trust goes in four directions. We trust ourselves, or let's say, can go in four directions as we work on things. We learn to, we find ways to trust ourselves. We find ways to trust others. So east is trust yourself. West is trust others. North above us is trust a higher power than our ego. And south all the way down is the ground, trust reality. I'll talk about each one of these. So I trust myself in certain areas. And in other areas, I know I can't trust myself. So I will have to rely on something bigger than myself to help me. So let's say I trust myself as a driver, but I don't trust myself as a drinker because I know that I overdo it. So I don't try to trust myself then. I turn to a program that will help me handle my drinking since I myself can't trust myself in that area. So that would be the equivalent of going to a 12-step program or going to therapy if, the, if it were a different topic. Therapy does not work when it comes to addictions. What works are 12-step programs. And therapy is an adjunct. But <clears throat> our trust in ourselves will therefore be totally limited. Your trust in others has to be based on evidence that they show themselves to be trustworthy. Otherwise, it becomes codependency. I simply keep trusting you even though over and over again you've shown me that you can't be trusted. Trust in a higher power would be turning to Buddha or God, Christ, um, some um, animating spirit in yourself or in nature whatever fits for you as something that you turn to as a kind of refuge. 
<clears throat> something to go to that helps you, that supports the healthy program that you're trying to engage in. And then finally, reality itself. This one is very, very interesting from my point of view. That the things that happen things happen and they can be trusted always to give you an opportunity for practice. Practice of what? Practice of mindfulness and loving kindness. By mindfulness, I mean I'll be able to sit with this reality and not have to be overwhelmed by it. I'll be able to look at it just as what it is without being assailed by fears, cravings, clingings, definitions, judgments on myself, shame, blame. I'll just be able to see what happens just as it is. And when things happen, I'll always be able to respond with loving kindness from the Buddhist practice of loving kindness, which consists of feeling equal love for yourself and others. Although you show it in different ways. Or another way of saying it is, Things happen in reality. And since everything that happens offers a spiritual opportunity, then all reality is holy. Such a wonderful realization. Since everything that happens, since everything that people do, since all the experiences that have happened to me and keep happening, barring none, will definitely offer an opportunity for mindfulness and loving kindness, that is, spiritual practice, That's the equivalent of the original events, the original reality is holy. Because it's offering me a holy option. Holy simply means the wholeness of our psyche and our life including both the psychological and the spiritual, which will be our style throughout the day. Or another way of saying it is, nothing just happens and remains simply a happening. Everything that happens is offering something. This is different from the New Age superstition. Everything happens for a reason. 
that makes it sound like uh, there's somebody who's adjusting things so that you will find some reason. I would put it this way. Instead of saying, everything happens for a reason, everything happens, and in everything, I can find a reason to do my practice. That is not superstitious, but the other one is. Everything happens so that we can learn a lesson, superstition, change it. Everything happens and I can learn from it. Reality-based. Everybody see? So I can trust reality as a source of spiritual awakening brings together that vertical line, north and south. Since I live in a world in which I'm not complete, I need others. So horizontally, I'm also connected. I wanted to bring this in so we could see the various directions that trust goes in. Any um, questions about this? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, often for myself, when something is happening, I find myself having an easier time if I frame it as the universe is bringing this to me because it knows this is where I need to grow. And, but the fact that you've said things don't happen for a reason, but find a reason in each thing that happens to grow. Um, and I'm just trying to understand the relationship that I've kind of developed, not being a higher power that's bringing this opportunity to me. You mean thinking of the universe as the higher power? Yes. Mm -hmm. No problem. What you're saying is the universe is in on our evolutionary program. Right. Uh, that certainly makes sense. Yeah. Like it's loving me into my best self. If it gives comfort to look at it that way, I think it's no problem. Thank you. And all of us have had that feeling that, you know, somebody up there likes me. <laughs> or not. <laughs> Sometimes not. <laughs> okay, any other questions on that? All right, so now we can go into uh, this larger question of trust being honored or broken, what we do when the trust is broken. And I want to begin, if you have the book, I'm on page 76. Uh, well, let's start on 75. I have how to know if someone can be trusted. Here is a checklist to audit your relationship. 
with regard to you towards your partner and your partner towards you. Show this list and your responses to your partner. Ask that he or she do the same list regarding you. And I just want to go through some of what's on this because it'll bring up the kind of questions that lead us into the other part of the topic. A partner can be trusted when he or she shows integrity and lives in accord with standards of fairness and honesty in all his or her dealings, not just in the ones with you. That's when you can really trust, when you see it across the board. There's a connection between integrity and trust in the dictionary definition. So now I'm quoting from Webster. Trust is the assured reliance on another's integrity. So when you have assured reliance on this, this is a person of integrity. Now you have the basis of trust. He or she may operate on the basis of self-interest, but never at the expense of you or others. He or she will not retaliate, use the silent treatment, resort to violence, or hold a grudge. Predictably shows you the five A's. Supports you when you need him or her. Keeps agreements. Remains sexually faithful. Does not lie or have a secret life. Genuinely cares about you. Stands up for you. Is what he or she appears to be. Wants to appear just as he or she is. No matter if at times it is unflattering. Respects your boundaries. For instance, when you say no, he will back off. Tries to work things out by addressing, processing, and resolving issues as they arise. In the face of conflicts, he does not say what the cowardly lion said in The Wizard of Oz. Get me out of here. (laughs) He will say what Romeo said. I still will stay with thee. Does not jump to finding a solution when you tell him the problem. Can listen without judgment, especially without a fixed or moralistic belief. I do not find myself saying, he he or she just doesn't hear me. I notice my partner is listening attentively. The ability to hear someone is really about trust, not just about communication. Does not give up on me or anyone seems to believe in an inherent goodness and potential for enlightenment in all beings. That's one of our Buddhist beliefs. 
<clears throat> is more committed to being honest about his or her mistakes and apologizing when necessary than in defending his own ego. I recall an interview in which Henry Kissinger said that Richard Nixon told him, told him this privately, that Richard Nixon did not end the war in Vietnam early because, quote, this is Kissinger speaking, he did not want to be remembered as the president who lost a war. I added this. Imagine having a son or daughter in the army with that attitude in the White House. That would be an example of no trust. And then finally, we can take both trustworthiness and untrustworthiness as information about whether a relationship can go on but never as an incentive to hurt back if we are betrayed or to stay put if we are hurt. So I'll read that once more. So people will sometimes be trustworthy, sometimes untrustworthy. We notice it. We take it as information. Information about what? About whether a relationship has enough going for it that it can continue. But we never take it as permission to hurt the other if he or she was untrustworthy or to stay put when he or she remains untrustworthy. There would have to be the commitment to do what we'll be talking about more at length after lunch, a very specific program that you put into place when you were unfaithful or broke a commitment or were untrustworthy. But questions about any of this part? Everybody get the basic concept? It seems like these um, qualities are also describing uh, healthy relationships and healthy people. And there are some people who just never even think this way. They don't think, well, there are criteria that I need to follow or look for if I'm going to have a relationship that really works. Instead, they just let one thing after another happen and kind of go with the program. Maybe we saw that in our parents to some extent. I certainly felt in my childhood that events just kept happening but nobody ever stopped and processed anything. And, you know, they just didn't think that way back then, which doesn't excuse it. But uh, it's going to be hard for us to learn to process things when 
uh, we weren't in households where that was the style. Like it's just one event after another. Sort of like a, that's the difference between a soap opera and a Shakespeare play. In a soap opera, it's one event after another, and no event is completely processed and completed. Just a new thing happens that distracts you into the next interesting uh, event. Whereas in a serious play like Shakespeare or the Greek plays, something happens and then the people work with what happened and come up with some kind of resolution. There's something in us that wants that. What in us wants that is healthy. What in us wants what happens in soap operas is, is not coming from a healthy place. It's coming from wanting more and more excitement. So it's more about testosterone and adrenaline. It's not about oxytocin in which you somehow get to a point where you feel comfortable and uh, feel as if you are working through things and resolving things. Okay, any questions about any of this part? All right, so let's just say one final thing here before we wind up. And for this, I want to go back to something I said at the very beginning. Remember when we were uh, first looking at the idea of the I trust you, So I need to trust you or be able to trust you. And of course, on the face of it, what you're asking for is something very legitimate. You're asking for safety and security. I need to know that it's safe to be me here and that it's safe to be with you. What does that mean? You will honor my boundaries and I will be able to live my life in accord with my own deepest needs and wishes. I need to know that I can trust you also means I need to know that it's secure to be here. What does this mean? The relationship goes on even though there are blips on the screen. We have a technology in place to handle what occurs. So we don't start the relationship over again every time something happens we accommodate the various events. Now, this would be a healthy way of 
saying why I need to trust you. But I want to throw in one more possibility, which isn't quite in the same category. (coughs) Since it's very big in the human psyche to avoid grief, One of the reasons we might, quote, absolutely need the other to be trustworthy is because we don't ever want to feel the pain of hurt, disappointment, loss, infidelity, knowing that it will stir up grief. And an implicit bargain in an unconscious relationship is you will protect me from ever having to feel anything and I will do the same. Or you will protect me from ever having to feel grief and I will do the same. That would not be in the same category as you will keep me safe and secure and I will keep you safe and secure. That is a healthy motivation. This motivation, which uh, many of us have or have had in the course of various relationships, um, it's not quite so healthy because you're preventing yourself from feeling the appropriate feelings. And you will feel especially hurt and betrayed by someone who rubbed your nose in your actual grief. So sometimes what I see in working with couples is they're, they're more angry that you made me have to feel this bad than about what you did. And all of this is happening because we didn't way beforehand, before we even got into a relationship, build our toolkit of all the practices to handle disappointment, to handle endings, to handle betrayals, to handle changes, to handle conflicts. Some of these we'll talk about after lunch, but they're summarized as inner resources. So it's going to be a very difficult relationship when neither person has the inner resources built up and each one expects the other to take care of things so that I never have to use the inner resources. Everybody follow? So it hits you in both ways. One, you didn't build up the inner resources to begin with, so when things happen, you are thrown for a loop. 
And secondly, you blame the other person because you thought uh, with this person around, I shouldn't ever have to feel these things. Just to use a silly example, it would be like uh, if you married somebody who was a uh, handyman, male or female, and you thought to yourself, oh, I'm never going to have to call any plumbers or electricians. This partner will take care of it all. Well, you're going to be very disappointed if you find out he doesn't have all the skill you thought he had. But, but it was wrong to begin with to expect that. The better approach would have been you yourself learn how to be your own handy person and, uh, and then call upon those who have other skills when what's required is bigger than what you can handle. But grief is the central thing that we avoid. And one of the things I've noticed is that um, some, relation, some couples engage in retaliation against each other when they hurt each other. They go straight to retaliation. I was studying a uh, play by Shakespeare, Troilus and Cressida, which is about a couple in which the woman is unfaithful. And there's a single line in it, and this line is spoken by the man to whom she was unfaithful. The one line says it all. Very simple, easy to understand. Because now he's, he's mustering an army to deal with the issues that have come up. This is the line. The hope of revenge shall hide our inward woe. Woe, grief. The hope of revenge shall hide our inward woe. Let's engage in revenge. Then we won't notice the grief. That's what he's saying. We'll feel a lot better if we get back at them. How could you possibly trust somebody who had that point of view? I'll use revenge to avoid my grief. It's a terribly aggressive style. But I know nobody in here would ever do things like this. All right, so we're going to take a break. We're going to come back here and start again at 2, but I'll be back at a quarter of 2 if you want me to sign any of the books. So, see you soon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.